Earlier this year, the Washington Post ran an article that was headlined, America really is more divided than ever. It's just what Sean was saying a moment ago. In support of the author's thesis in that article, he pointed to a Pew Research poll that said that more than four in ten Democrats and Republicans say that the other party's policies are so misguided that they pose a threat to the nation. The article went on to add that the divide is more than just political. So we're a nation that's divided racially, socioeconomically. We're divided between the religious and the irreligious. We're divided between men and women, between climate changers and those who don't believe in climate change, and on and on and on. Now listen, I, I really don't know if America really is more divided than we've ever been, but one thing is very clear. We are divided. We really do have a tough time living together, don't we? This morning, I want to take you to the one place on earth where, as one author puts it, socially incompatible people are mysteriously able to live in peace with one another. And I think you'd be surprised where that place is. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 15. We are almost at the end of a long series that we've been in on the last days of Jesus Christ from the book of Mark. In fact, next week is the last week of the series. And I will, I will tell you, really, you know, this is the second half of the series. We started the series, the first half of the series, way back last year. We did some things in between series. And then now we're just about to finish this up. Those of you who've been with us for some time are probably like, it is about time that we're ready. <laughs> we're going to finish up Mark. As we open up Mark chapter 15, the passage that we're going to look at today, it is Friday afternoon of Holy Week. It is around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All of the blind rage of humanity against God has been unleashed upon Jesus, and he has breathed his last breath. The thick darkness that came over the whole land at noon has given way to light. The veil in the temple inside Jerusalem that separated man from God has been miraculously torn from the top to the bottom to signify that anyone and everyone can come to God now through Jesus. I want to start reading at verse 39 today, Mark chapter 15, verse 39. And, and as I often do, I'm going to read the whole passage, and then I'm going to come back and, and make some comments, starting in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day. That, that, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, excuse me, Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. One of the misperceptions of the gospel is that its influence is limited to the realm of only the individual. In other words, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. 
And that's sort of what the influence uh, of the gospel is. And I'll be very honest with you that for many, many years, that's how I saw the gospel too. But a number of years ago, I began to realize that the gospel is, is certainly not less than personal. It is absolutely personal. But that the gospel's reach is far wider than I had previously understood. The presence of the gospel or the lack of the presence of the gospel in many cases can influence the world economy. It can influence how we take care of the planet. It can influence how we educate. It can influence the arts. It can influence nations, cities. It can change racial issues, tensions between the sexes, and much, much more. Now, the question is, I know some of you are probably wondering, well, why do you, why do you say that? Some preacher somewhere uh, compared what is wrong with the world uh, to a solar system. And he said, well, if you think about it, a solar system is only a system because all of the planets operate in agreement, as it were, that there is only one center of the system, the sun. Just one center of the system, the sun. And all of the rest of the planets orbit around that center. But he said, imagine... If every single planet said, no, I'm going to be the center of the universe, and then every single planet used all of its gravitational pull to try to get all of the other planets to revolve around it. So every planet says, I want to be the center. You all have to revolve around me. And he said, well, if every planet insists that every other planet has to revolve around it, what do you have? Well, you, you, you don't have a system anymore. You have a cataclysm. You have worlds colliding. You have a planetary pileup on the Milky Way. And that, of course, you like that. Some of you like that. And I liked it, too, when I wrote it. I got to tell you, I thought that was good. And the rest of you who didn't get it, well, we'll get you. Listen to it again. You'll get it next time. Okay. Well, that, of course, is what human history is. That's what individuals, that's what nations and countries have been doing to each other throughout human history. We've all been saying, I'm the center of the universe. We're the center of the universe. You have to revolve around us. You have to revolve around me. And this is why we have such a hard time living with each other. Each of us wants to be the center. And we all want to use all of the forces at our disposal to get everyone else to recognize that we, that I, in the center of the universe. The only problem is that everybody else is doing the same thing. That's the problem with the world. That's, that's the problem with all of world history. That's the problem with the world now. That's why America is so divided today. On the other hand, the gospel says there is really only one center, and that center of the universe is not you. The center is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And yet, the one who is the center of the world came to serve people like you and me who weren't centers of the world but thought we were. And he served us even to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, because the center of the world did that, we are to serve people in the same way that Christ did. We're to stop believing that we're the center of the world and to serve people in the same way that Christ did. Imagine the impact that that could have on a nation. If that idea really sunk in deeply, that there's only one center of the world and it's not you, and so the rest of us ought to serve one another, imagine what impact that could have. It would. It would affect our economy. It would affect race relations. It would affect families. 
It would affect homelessness. It would affect relationships between nations and much, much more. That's the far-reaching implication of the gospel. And that view of the far-reaching influence of the gospel is reflected, of course, in our vision statement on the wall. In fact, would you guys look at that and would you just, let's read it together. The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in that last uh, phrase, like movement of people, individual people, a movement of a group of individuals who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's the idea, you know, of, of personal salvation. But in that first phrase, that we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond, there in that first phrase, you find the idea that the influence of the gospel can change not only the spirituality of a whole city, but it can change the social, uh, social structures of the city. And it can change the culture of the city, represented in part by the city's arts. Now, why do I say all that? It doesn't seem like on the surface it has anything to do with the passage, does it? But, it? but it does. I say all that to explain why when I look at this passage of Scripture, I am most fascinated with the way the gospel reconciles the petty and pathetic walls of hostility and division that we as a people are routinely building around ourselves that make sure that we that everyone knows that I am the center of the universe, not you, or that my group is the center of the universe, not yours. Okay. Three, um, three of these stand out to me. I think there are more in this passage, and those of you who are in city life groups can determine some of the other groups that are reconciled around the cross in this passage. But in the interest of time, I want to just focus on three groups that are normally divided in society, that are reconciled at the foot of the cross, okay? Three groups. And here's the first one. In verse 39, I'm going to say it this way. Ethnic divisions are reconciled at the cross. Ethnic divisions, racial tensions are reconciled at the cross. Right off the bat, you see it here. The first person after Jesus dies on the cross, who proclaims his belief in Jesus, is a Roman, a Gentile, not a Jew. The Roman centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. And the reason I, reason I put the emphasis on the word this is that's how the centurion would have said it. Because, you see, the emperor of Rome claimed that he was the Son of God. In fact, his name uh, declaring that he was the Son of God, was on all of Roman currency. So when this centurion says, this man was the Son of God, he's taking his life into his own hands. Certainly taking his career into his own hands, but he's also taking his life into his own hands because he means Jesus, not Caesar, is the Son of God. Okay? Now, what's, what's interesting about the centurion's declaration is that way back in Genesis chapter 12, after the perfect world that God had created had been ruined by Adam and Eve's sin, God immediately sets off on a rescue mission for the planet. And in setting off on this rescue mission, he, he makes a promise to a man named Abraham. 
And he says to Abraham, I'm going to put the verses up on the screen here for you. He says, I will make you, oh, we have those, there we go. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless. Listen to how many times the word bless shows up in this. That's, see, this is what God's heart longs to do, to bless. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, of course, the great nation that came out of Abraham would be Israel. And this phrase, all the people on earth will be blessed through you, it's kind of a veiled reference to the fact that the Messiah would come from Israel and that he would open the way to God for all nations, not just the Jewish people. Okay? Now, that's way back in Genesis 12. Here, immediately after Jesus dies on the cross, we see this very thing happening in the very first person who believes in the Jewish Messiah, a Roman. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Not just the Jewish people, a Roman immediately, a Gentile, proclaims his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to understand the significance of a Roman, a Gentile, proclaiming his belief in the Lord Jesus. Jews did not like Gentiles. Gentiles were sort of beastly, unclean people in their eyes. And at this moment in history, the worst Gentiles to the Jews were the Romans. The Jews despised the Romans because the Romans were occupying what the Jewish people believed to be their holy land. And vice versa, the Romans didn't like uh, the Jews either. They despised them. That's why we've seen in uh, the last days of Jesus, we've, we've seen the other guards mocking Jesus as the king of the Jews. This is why Pilate puts this sign above Jesus' head that says, king of the Jews. Okay? Who are the Jews? They're nobodies, the Romans thought. They're silly, weak people who are weirdly religious, and they're always causing trouble for the Romans. So these two groups of people despise one another. And yet Mark, the author of this gospel, a Jewish man himself, wants us to see this Romans declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark understands how remarkable this was. He understands, his, understands it as a fulfillment of Genesis 12, and he understands it that this is something miraculous that is happening. I don't, you know, the only comparison I can make that is strong enough to help you understand this, I think, is to imagine an ISIS soldier who hears the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. And at that very first time that he hears the gospel, he drops to his knees and he proclaims Jesus Christ's lordship over the world instead of Allah's. That, see, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. That's how crazy this moment is, that this Roman is worshiping a Jewish Messiah, a Gentile worshiping a Jewish Messiah. Now, I want you to understand this, that as far as the Bible is concerned, there are only two ethnicities in the world. 
You know, all the stuff that we think about, you know, uh, blacks and whites and Hispanics and, and, you know, Chinese and Arabs and all that, the Bible doesn't recognize any of that nonsense. It says that there are only two ethnicities in the world, okay? One is the Jewish people and one are the Gentiles. And here at the cross of Christ, those two ethnicities are reconciled in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who demonstrates the same love to a Gentile soldier as he does to Jewish men and women. Let me tell you what the implications are for you and for me. White man, white woman, you have no foundation for your belief that you are better than a black man or a black woman. No foundation at all. You are on sinking sand if that's what you believe. And likewise, black man or black woman, you have no foundation for your belief that you are better than a white man or a white woman or that your sins are less significant than theirs. You have no foundation. You are on sinking sand if that's what you believe. Because all ethnicities have been reconciled at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I just take a moment and just imagine how that could affect the city of Evansville if the gospel took hold here. Perhaps you wouldn't have all-white neighborhoods and all-black neighborhoods. White homeowners wouldn't be afraid that black people moving into their neighborhood will bring the value of their homes down. You wouldn't have the animosity in this city between black men and women and children and the police. There might even be proportionately as many black business owners as there are white business owners in this city. At the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ reconciles all of the ethnic groups in the world. Ethnic divisions are reconciled there. And the place that that is supposed to be most demonstrated is the place where the people who believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross come together on a weekly basis, black, white, every race, all come together to worship Jesus, loving each other and living together in peace, not in division. Some of you wonder, uh, you know, I hear people all the time talking about, well, you know, why, why, why do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Why do I have to go to church? Well, I'm going to tell you something. One of the things that your presence here does every Sunday morning is that it proclaims to the world that, yes, you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has died on the cross for the sins of humanity, but it also proclaims that you believe that all ethnic groups in the world are reconciled at the foot of the cross and that you can worship in the same place as anyone else of any other color. Because here, people are brought together who are very different, but they're brought together at the foot of the cross and they can live in love and peace with one another. That's why going to church matters. That's one of the reasons it matters. Because you're a witness to that when you come. And if you're at home... If you're, sleeping at, if you're sleeping in late, you're not a witness to that. 
But when you come, you can be a witness to that. All right, let me go on. Ethnic divisions are reconciled at the foot of the cross. And second, I want you to see something else. Gender divisions are reconciled at the cross. Gender divisions. Division between men and women are reconciled at the cross. I want you to notice. I don't know if you paid attention to this, but I want you to notice how many times women are mentioned in this passage. Verse 40, some women were watching from a distance. Verse 41, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Again, the reason that Mark keeps repeating this is that he wants us to see the role that women played in Jesus' life and ministry. Listen, if you have ever, uh, maybe you've heard people say this, maybe, maybe you've thought this, that the Gospels were made-up stories that were designed to spin a narrative that would cause people to follow Jesus. You really can't trust them because people just made these stories up and they were handed down over time. Please understand something. If that's what the gospel writers were doing, they were idiots. Because having women play such an important part in the gospel would have been a non-starter. Women were the most marginalized and least respected group of people in that culture. They would have provided no credibility at all to the gospel. And in fact, their presence would have diminished the credibility of the gospel. It would have been like, well, that means it's not true. Nobody in their right mind would have women playing that role. So if they made this up, you know, if they were making this up, they wouldn't have put women. They wouldn't have had women play such a crucial role in the gospel. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the, we- the fact that women were so marginalized, at the most crucial moment in the history of salvation, God trusts a group of women with the whole story. We're going to see next week that it was women who first discovered that Jesus had been raised from the dead. In fact, for decades after, the only disciples who could actually say, I witnessed, I saw the death, I saw the burial, I saw the resurrection, the only disciples who could do that were actually women. Now here you have a Jewish man dying for women and women being entrusted as witnesses of the gospel at a time in history in which no other society would have entrusted them with the same job. Instead of relegating women to the periphery of the story of the gospel, God brings them right into the heart of it. And by doing so, he elevates their importance and their dignity to the same as the men in the gospels. But there's something else that he's doing here too with this. By doing this, by bringing women right into the heart of the gospel, God is saying that he hates the injustice in the world that subverts a woman's human rights, that denies them an education, that pays them less for the same job as men, and every other injustice that is done to women in the world. Ladies, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have heard people say that Christianity is degrading to women? Raise your hand. If you've heard that somewhere, go ahead. Don't be afraid. Raise your hand. Come on. Yeah, there you go, a bunch of you. You guys up there in the balcony, have you heard it too, ladies? Have you heard it? Yeah? Okay, good, good, good. Here's the irony of this whole idea that Christianity is degrading to women in the world. 
Let me use Hollywood as an example. Hollywood, for instance, loves to portray Christianity in a manner that, that, that says that it, you know, like it degrades women. And they love, Hollywood loves to portray itself as exalting women. Yet, young women in Hollywood are constantly objectified by being pressured to take off their clothes so that movies will sell and so that TV shows will be watched. And God forbid a woman age if she's an actress in Hollywood because she'll stop receiving officer, uh, excuse me, offers for parts in movies and TV shows. Even more actresses are often paid far less than their male counterparts. Just recently, I don't know, some of you may have caught this, Academy Award-winning actress Hilary Swank said that, uh, she was quoted as saying that after she won her second Academy Award, she was offered a role in a movie with a male actor who had received no critical success. Like, she, she had two Academy Awards, male actor, no criti- critical success. She got offered $500,000 to do the movie. The male actor, $10 million to do the movie. That's Hollywood. Oh, my goodness. They're so, they elevate women. They're so fair to women. They don't degrade women. They, $500,000 to $10 million. I wonder how many of you young women realize that God hates the injustice of Hollywood toward women. And I wonder how many of you young women realize that Christianity across the board and in every way elevates the importance and the dignity of women. And that God demonstrates that here. Immediately after Jesus dies on the cross, he elevates women's importance in the gospel accounts to the same importance as men in a culture that was far, far more anti-women than ours. How many of you realize that? Here is a man, Jesus, dying for women and entrusting them with the very heart of his movement. Now, can you imagine the kind of impact that might have in our city if the city of Evansville really got a hold of the gospel? I've talked to women here in Evansville who have told me that at their workplace, here in Evansville, that they are constantly subjected to men who touch them inappropriately, who say crude things to them, to bosses who don't hide their desire to sleep with them. That kind of treatment of women wouldn't happen if the gospel really caught on here. Women wouldn't find that there's a glass ceiling beyond which they cannot be promoted because they are a woman. Women in Evansville wouldn't be paid less than men for the same job. Women in Evansville wouldn't become victims of domestic violence. And on the other hand, our culture wouldn't be trying so hard to emasculate men because masculinity would be used to elevate and grant dignity to women rather than a Use, oppress, and take advantage of women. Listen, ladies, I want to tell you something. The answer to the problem between the sexes isn't to emasculate men. It's to get men to be men in the way that they treat women. And once a person understands the gospel and takes it deep into his life and he understands that Jesus died for women and that he entrusted them with the heart of his message, a man's treatment of women changes. 
Gospel has far-reaching implications. Yes, it's about individual salvation, but it's more than that. Even gender divisions, ethnic divisions and gender divisions are reconciled at the foot of the cross. And finally, I want you to see that socioeconomic divisions are also reconciled at the cross. Socioeconomic divisions are reconciled at the cross. In verse 43, you've got this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, He's a prominent member of the council, Mark says. And he says he went boldly to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body. And then, as you saw, he prepares Jesus' body for burial. The contrast between the life that Jesus lived and Joseph's life couldn't have been greater. Jesus lived his life as a poor man. He was a nobody from a nothing little town. And as for power, well, he became weak in order to save sinners. When Mark describes Joseph as being prominent, Mark is saying that, he, that, that Joseph is rich and he's powerful. He was a member of the council, which likely means that he was a Pharisee. And yet, because he isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark, he appears to have been a very secret follower of of Jesus. So like where was Joseph when the Pharisees had Jesus on trial? Why didn't he stand up and say this this whole thing is a sham, it's wrong? Why didn't he do that? You know why? You know why he didn't do it. Like a rich powerful man has a lot to lose. He's got a lot to lose if he crosses the wrong people, doesn't he? Power and wealth isn't something that you just have. Power and wealth tends to be, like if you have it, it tends to be who you are. Like it becomes your identity. It becomes how you feel good about yourself. And so power and wealth often makes people cowards. I'm not saying always. I'm saying it often makes people cowards. And I think that's what happens to Joseph. He calculates that he has too much to give up, so he stays quiet at the injustice that is being demonstrated toward Jesus at the trials, at the crucifixion. But something changes in Joseph after Jesus' death. Mark says here that he went to Pilate boldly. In other words, words, after Jesus dies on the cross, Joseph suddenly finds a courage that he didn't have prior to Jesus' death. Going to Pilate and asking for Jesus' body is a risky move on Joseph's part. Rome had just crucified Jesus. Right? I mean, like as a a challenger to the throne. And the Pharisees had just found him guilty of heresy. And so in asking for Jesus' body, Joseph is coming out of the shadows and into the light as a follower of Jesus. And he's taking his whole life into his hands by doing this. Something has changed in Joseph. And I would like to suggest that what has changed is his attitude toward power and wealth. All of a sudden... Something more important than power and money has captured the imagination of Joseph's heart. He's willing to risk everything in order to properly bury Jesus. But but there's something else here too that I want you to see. 
Yes, his attitude toward wealth has changed. But I want you to see something else. In ancient times in, uh, in Israel, when a person died and was being buried, what they did was that they would, uh, they would wash the body, and then they would wrap it in linen, and they would anoint the body with spices and perfumes. It was a terrible job. Like to take a dead body off of a cross, a cadaver that had been beaten mercilessly and the guts were coming out of it, was an incredibly stomach-turning, loathsome, um, dirty, uh, smelly, awful job. Now, who do you think in that culture was reconciled to that job? Who do you think? Uh, well, let me ask. Let me ask some of you. Um, when uh, a kid at home pukes, who gets who gets asked to do that job? The women get asked to do that job. That's right. And the same, in this culture, women were the ones that were asked to do that job. Maybe slaves, but always women. Okay, certainly not prominent powerful men. But here is Joseph in this passage doing this dirty, filthy, terrible task. There were women who could have done it. You notice Mark says that, that there, that there were women there. But instead, Joseph is doing it, and the women are watching. If Joseph was like any other man in Judea at the time, Joseph Joseph would have looked and seen those women over there, and he would have said, hey, you women, come and do this. This isn't my job. You there, women, you do it. I'm an important person. But he doesn't do that, does he? He's doing something incredibly culturally inappropriate. He's not standing on his prominence. Why? I would like to suggest that Joseph has seen that the only reason that he is a recipient of grace himself is because Jesus became poor and he gave his power away. Jesus had all the status of the Prince of Heaven. He emptied himself of that, Philippians 2 tells us, of that position and that power to come to earth. And on the cross, he so identified with sinners that he became sin himself. And once the king of the universe humbles himself in that way, how can Joseph not humble himself in that way? And so he risks his power and his status by asking for the body of a mocked and crucified Jewish king. And he does the work of a person far beneath him socioeconomically. Socioeconomic divisions are reconciled at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine what would happen in our city If the gospel took hold here, and if people of wealth and power were as affected by the gospel as Joseph was, can you imagine the impact that would have in our city? I I would suggest to you that we wouldn't read stories like the one I read not long ago about a poor black woman in Evansville who lives in a house, and this is not just one person, but I read the story about one woman, one poor black woman in Evansville who lives in a house without air conditioning or heat because she can't afford it. I think if the gospel took hold, we wouldn't hear those kinds of stories. We wouldn't read those kinds of stories. 
Perhaps we, we, we would hear that those who have the power, uh, maybe like the power to hire. Some of you don't, you know, you're like, I don't have any power. Maybe you, maybe you have the power to hire in your company. Maybe we would hear about people who have the power to hire might give a chance to men and women who've been incarcerated and who desperately want to change but just need someone to take a risk on them and to give them a job. Maybe we'd, maybe we'd hear about those kind of stories. What makes the world a terrible place to live is that rich Powerful people use their wealth and their power all for themselves. And they twist and they manipulate justice at the expense of the weak and the oppressed in society. What if the people of power and wealth here in Evansville became seriously impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now I ask you that. And I ask you the other questions that I've asked you about about racial division and about gender division. I ask you that. Because what I want you to see this morning is that there is one place on earth where, as I said earlier, one author puts it, socially incompatible people are mysteriously able to live in peace with one another. It's at the cross of Christ. The implications of the gospel go far beyond just personal salvation. I want to challenge you in four ways this morning. First, As we move into the final days of a presidential election, I want to challenge you to look closely at where you put your hope for America. The hope of America, the hope of Evansville as a city, is not in politics. Sure, I believe that it's good to do all we can through legislation to ensure justice for all. But laws are external. They don't change hearts. Only the gospel can change one person's heart toward another. Where do you put your hope? In politics or in the gospel? Second, I want to ask you to watch what you say in the days ahead. Excuse me, in the days ahead. I want to challenge you to watch what you say on social media. I want to challenge you to watch what you say in personal conversations. And I want to ask you to ask yourself if what you say demonstrates a hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or a hope in American politics. Vote for whoever you plan on voting for, but do not put your hope there. Put your hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's at the foot of the cross that every hostile dividing wall that we put up around ourselves is torn down and that a divided America can find reconciliation and peace. Third, who are you sharing the gospel with? Who do you tell the gospel to? Tell someone the good news of the gospel. Show it with your life and speak it with your words because the world needs it. It is the hope of America. And fourth, I want to challenge you to change your attitude toward worship and church attendance. You know, we've done studies here that have shown that that the average number of times people come to church here at City Church is like two times a month or less. And I realize that some of you, as I said earlier, think to yourselves, well, coming to church doesn't really make a difference. I want you to change your attitude toward that. I want you to realize that every time you come here, you are not only demonstrating your own belief that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, but I want you to also understand that you're testifying to the fact that the hope of America and the hope of the world is in Jesus Christ because the local church is the place where people of different races, people of different genders, 
People who are socially incompatible can come and live in peace with one another and love each other. And this is where we demonstrate it. And your presence here proclaims your belief that the hope of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to change your view toward worship. I want to challenge you to change your attendance patterns. I want to challenge you to be here more frequently than you've been here in the past. And I challenge you, all of that, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, at whose cross, yes, you were saved, but also at whose cross, All of the hostile divisions in the world are reconciled. Bow your heads with me, if you would. Forgive us for putting our hope in politics, Lord Jesus. As the days come to, as the days of this presidential election wind down, Lord, I pray that you would find us putting our hope in you and in you alone. Lord Jesus, I pray that the gospel would take hold in this city. Well, first, I pray that it would take hold in this church, that we would become passionate about this gospel. And Lord, as it it takes hold in this church, I pray that it begins to spread out from this church. I pray that it would would take hold in every gospel-preaching church in Evansville, and that as it does, it would would go forward throughout the city and that revival would come to this city and that gospel would take hold here and that there would be not only the spiritual change of a city but also that the social structures in this city would change and that the culture of this city would change as a result of a group of people who are being transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that that you bring people together at the foot of the cross who would normally never interact with each other, never be able to live in peace with one another. Lord, thank you for that. There are so many different people here with different backgrounds. Lord, it's so wonderful to worship together with people who are different, different politically, different race, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds. It's wonderful to know that in you we have more in common with each other in you than we do with, with people who don't know you of our same race, our same socioeconomic uh, place, our same gender. Lord, we thank you for that truth that you can do what nothing else and no one else can do in this world. You can bring us together and reconcile people that would normally never be reconciled. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We'll spend eternity worshiping you for that. Amen.